morning, everyone. We're continuing in our series on Philippians. We have this Sunday and next Sunday left, and then I'll be getting into some Christmas messages. Um, and as we're nearing the end of Philippians, um, Paul is now, having proclaimed the gospel, now applying the gospel to our lives. And he finishes with, with three patterns. Um, and last week we looked at um, a profitable pattern of living, which was, if you remember last week, forgetting what's behind, striving towards the goal, the upward call of God in Christ, and avoiding the pattern of the enemies of the cross, rejecting passions and appetites that come from our flesh and ultimately consume us. And if we follow Paul's exhortation to live by this pattern, then he says we have a promise, uh, that we will receive more than a pattern, we will be transformed from a pattern of Christ into the very form, you remember the word simorphe, the very morphe of Christ's body in our resurrection. That was last week, and as I said, Paul has two more patterns. This week we're looking at a pattern of profitable thinking. And next week we'll look at profitable giving. And just understand that I'm imposing the idea of three patterns on the text, okay? Paul didn't sit down and write this letter thinking that some pastor was going to have three PowerPoint sessions on patterns. But this is what we do as pastors. We look at the text and we see the pattern that's in the text, and, and, and it helps us to understand what it is that Paul is saying, because Paul is saying a lot in a very little amount of time, and so we do need to break it down and, and give it some context. And, um, but this, is, this helps us organize the content this way in the letter. Um, and so Paul here now, in order to help us fight worldliness and to live gospel-shaped lives, Paul gives us now a pattern for thinking and a pattern for giving, which will be next week. And, and both of those patterns help us in our goal to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. And so today we're looking at a pattern for our minds, a pattern for beneficial and, and, a, and a flourishing thought life. And, and I was thinking about this, I'm thinking, man, if there was ever a time when we need a pattern for a healthy and profitable thought life, it's got to be today. I was going to go look up some statistics, and the sad thing is I don't even have to look up statistics for you guys, right? Because we already know. We already know that whether it's depression, bipolar, emotional issues, relational issues, suicide, like every indicator you could pull out of a basket on mental health is at an all-time high right now. I mean, we haven't seen it in decades, the amount of people that are struggling with mental health. And then quite apart from mental health, we know that the Bible tells us that with mankind's fall from our relationship with God came the disordering of creation, which includes the disordering of our minds and the disordering of our emotions and the disordering of our desires, the misplacing of our hope on fallible things of the world and ourselves. And so quite apart from depression and mental health issues, all of human society has replaced the meditation and pursuit of God with the distraction and the pursuit of earthly substitutes which ultimately fail us. The the collective thought life of humanity, uh, if you were just to base it on the content of daytime and primetime TV, is not terribly edifying and profitable. We are consumed with spectating other people's misery, conflict, and confrontation. We are consumed with glorifying violence and sexuality on HBO and Showtime primetime. 
or fantasizing about fake and unattainable lives through celebrity and wealth-focused reality TV shows, which are not real, by the way, in case you ever wondered. <laughs> reality TV has nothing to do with reality. But, but not even bringing in mental health issues or, or those types of things. Our, just, our thought life as a human species is not terribly edifying. If we look around the news, if we look at the movies being produced, if we look at what's on TV, if we look at what's being written, if we look at the magazines on the rack, I would not rank the human thought life on a very high scale. But that's not what God wants for us. Some people think of the Bible and imagine that by meditating on God and by following the instruction of Scripture that there's somehow their lives will become less joyful and less satisfying. You know, I, I don't want to give up all this, you know, great showtime and HBO TV in order to go to church. Um, but God, God wants something totally grander than we can imagine for ourselves. What the Bible instructs us towards and guides us into is just the opposite, not a decrease in our joy, but an increase. The commands and conclusion of the Bible, what God intends for us is joy, nobility, goodness, purity, excellence, justice, loveliness, which satisfies completely. And who doesn't want that? Wouldn't you think that most of the world would trade their current mental and emotional state of depression, anxiety, fear, selfishness, and conflict for that other list I just gave? And that's what Paul wants for his Philippian friends. That's what Paul is writing this letter for, especially these particular paragraphs in this letter. He wants for his Philippian friends and for us a pattern of thought life, a pattern of thinking in our minds that leads to joyful, satisfying, flourishing life. And that's what we're looking at today. Let me pray before we read from Philippians 2, 4, 2 to 9. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is intended for our joy and our flourishing, that you intend to rescue us from the poverty of our thought life and to give us a richer, more full, more noble, more just, more excellent thought life. And from that way of thinking, lead us into a more noble and excellent and joyful life itself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians 2, sorry, Philippians 4, verses 2 to 9. He says, I entreat Evodia and I entreat Syntyche, there's some good names for you, (laughs) to agree in the Lord. Next time you're going to name your baby, think of Syntyche. That's a a good girl's name. Um, To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the text neatly divides itself into three parts. There's a personal call to corporate unity in thought, and then there's a general pattern and promise in rejoicing, and there is a general pattern and promise in thinking. And we're really rushing through Philippians here, as I would normally have done these in three separate sermons, 
and I realize I have 20 minutes. And so we are just sort of skimming the surface of Philippians, but I'm going to go slow, and I want you to get what we get from these three sections uh, of the text this morning. Um, and uh, just realize that there is so much to this short little letter uh, to unpack. And, and Paul, when he writes, he puts so much into every sentence, as, we're, as we'll see nearly, near, near the end, how much he just puts in those last two sentences. But first of all, we have a, a personal call to corporate unity and thought. And, and Paul, I think here, you kind of wonder why he inserts this, this kind of very personal note uh, to Euvodia and to Syntyche. And uh, it, it seems a little bit out of place in here. But I think it, you can see the flow of thought here. Um, he, he wants to connect the more general instruction that he's going to give to personal examples of what is happening in the church in Philippi. And I'm going to let you guys talk about this more in your life group this week. I'm not going to go into a great deal of depth about it, uh, but I'll give you some pointers in your notes today, and you can go into more depth uh, during the week. But the, but the reality here, what we see here, is that Euvodia and Syntyche are not unified in thought. They are, they are not together. They're not in agreement in going forward. And, and we need to view them uh, in, in a good light. Um, some people look at Euvodia and Syntyche and they think, oh, these are just some gossiping old ladies in the church or something like that, or they're just, they're this, just this disruptive couple uh, of ladies who are, who are stirring things up. But you realize here the way Paul talks about them, uh, that they labor side by side with him in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. And the fact that he brings them by name into the letter uh, leads most people to believe and leads me to believe uh, that these are very important women in in the church. They are leaders. They are culture setters. They are, are thought leaders in the church. Um, they are uh, deacons and deaconesses, and so they um, are important to the health of the church, and, and Paul is saying these church leaders need to agree. They need to be unified. They need to have the same thought. You remember back in Philippians 2.2, 2, he said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so, and so Paul is just going back to something he touched on early in the letter, and he's saying these two women are not of one mind. They are not of one accord. They're not together in agreement. And that's what I want for the leadership of the church. That's what I want for these two women. That's what I want for all of you Philippians. And it's interesting that Paul considers the Philippian church, and he considers Euodia and Syntyche mature enough to handle this kind of rebuke properly. They're mature women, and it's a mature church, and so Paul can actually call them out in a letter and know that they're not just going to be angry at him, but they're going to take it to heart. And there's a lesson there for all of us, which again, I'll let you dig into, about the reality of sometimes you are going to get called out, and do you have the maturity to accept being called out and to accept the rebuke of other leaders in the church? To say, okay, if, if it is so important that I'm getting called out by name on this, or somebody's taking me out for a coffee and confronting me on it, if it's that important, am I just going to take my ball and go home, or am I going to listen to what it is that is on their heart so that I can be a Philippian kind of Christian? But what stands out in verse 3 is the elevation of importance of corporate participation in unity and reconciliation in mind and thought. Paul frames this whole situation around these two women as depending on the involvement of other trusted intercessors. 
He says, you, true companion, similar to Philemon and Onesimus. There's, a, there's an intercessor that he intends to be involved here. And he names Clement, and he refers to all his fellow workers who are written in the book of life. And contrary to what you might think, the whole church is affected by our disagreements and our disobedience. You may think that you're in disagreement here, or you're upset with someone there, or you're in disobedience there, and, you know, it's your private matter. It's just between you and God. It's not. When mature Christians in the body of Christ who are serving side by side, arm in arm, like we talked about, standing firm, are in disagreement, it affects everybody. And Paul says it's a community matter, and the church may need to be involved, whether it's a, just a regular um, servant and deacon in the church, or whether it's an elder or a leader, the whole church may need to be involved. But I'm going to leave the unpacking of all of that for your life group time. For today, we're just going to see that Paul draws out from a personal example of two women who cannot agree. Their pattern of thinking is not in alignment. They're out of sync to K. Oh, that's a terrible pun. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I just had to do it. Like, the dad in me came out. And, uh, and so Paul takes that personal example of Evodia and Syntyche, and he flows it into two general patterns of Christian thought. First of all, there's a general pattern and a promise in rejoicing. He says, rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. And just remembering the context of this letter so far, we've talked about it a number of times. Paul starts out in prison. That's the opening segment. Paul's talking about his imprisonment and possibly facing death. And yet Paul says, rejoice. And then then as you go on in the letter, it dwells for a time on the need to stand firm and and stand without fear under persecution and opposition and in the midst of an evil and perverse generation, and yet Paul says rejoice. And and then you go on, and and we learn in in the third case that there are divisive and destructive forces at work even inside the church. Remember, he says, don't pay attention to the mutilators of the flesh and the dogs that are in the church. And yet Paul says rejoice. So so neither Paul's difficult circumstances nor the dangers the Philippians face can eclipse Christian joy. Why does Paul say rejoice despite circumstances inside and outside the church, despite the fact that he's in prison facing death? He says rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice, because it's rejoicing in the Lord. Our joy is not found in our personal circumstances, but our joy and our rejoicing is in the Lord. To say rejoice in the Lord here is almost exactly the same as saying rejoice in the gospel. Paul's just finished describing how he presses on towards the goal, towards glory. He forgets what is behind in order to know Jesus, to know his power, to join him in suffering and final glorification. He just got finished explaining all of that. And these are all reasons to rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in the amazing gospel promise that Jesus has made true for each and every one of us, Paul is saying. We do not rejoice in our personal circumstances, but we do rejoice 100% as a Christian community all the time in Jesus and in his gospel. He's the reason for our rejoicing. Not what's going on in our church, not what's going on in the culture, not even if we're in prison, not even if we're persecuted. Paul says rejoice in the Lord. And I'll risk being repetitious. I say it again, rejoice. And then secondly, Paul revisits the theme of humility in this letter. He says, let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. And the Greek here is helpful to see the connection to the rest of the letter. The word translated as reasonableness or gentleness, which is a good translation, 
is epielkis, which means your forbearing spirit. So Paul says, let your forbearing spirit be known to everyone. And that's like your humility. It's, it's more directly the gentleness or the attitude of contentment or your humility as you esteem others more highly than yourself, as he's already talked about. Your forbearing spirit that, that lets others go ahead of you. It's how we stand in relation. We forbear to the impositions that others may put on us. We forbear to the needs that they have. We esteem them more highly than ourselves. By having a forbearing spirit, it means that our contentment is not based on our personal rights, which we give way to others. So our joy is not found in our personal circumstances, but in the Lord. And here Paul says our contentment or our gentleness is not based on our personal rights but we give those away to others. And thirdly, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, by thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he says, rejoice. He says, give way and don't be anxious, but pray. So just as Paul does not want his Philippian friends to rely on their personal circumstances for joy, and he does not want them to depend on their personal rights being honored in order to be content, neither does Paul want them to rely on their personal resources to supply their needs. Neither the Philippians nor we Christians need to rely on our own resources in order to meet our deepest needs and concerns. Instead, Paul encourages us to recognize that in all things flow from God, and that by prayer and supplication, by asking, we can transfer our anxiety of our needs to God and trust in his provision, whatever his provision is. And so in all these ways, Paul has a pattern for rejoicing, a pattern for us. He says, don't depend on your circumstances. Don't rejoice because your circumstances are good. Rejoice in the Lord. He says, don't be content because everything's going your way. Forbear. And don't put your contentment and your gentleness and your humility based on the fact that you're being honored and your rights are being honored, but forbear and give way your personal rights. And here he says, don't depend on your resources. Don't think, I'm going to be okay. I can be at peace. I can sleep at night because my resources are taking care of things. He says, no, your anxiety and your peace are not dependent upon your resources. They're dependent on God's resources. You rely on God's resources for your deepest needs and concerns, and that's how you can have peace. And Paul actually uses four different words for prayer in these two sentences. Persuke, deesis, eucharista, and atima. And all of them, prayer, petition, thanksgiving, request. All four of those words for prayer. And and there's no hidden theological secret to unlocking patterns of prayer, like you need to be praying four days a week in the four different patterns of prayer or anything like that. It's just Paul repeating this word over and over and over again from different angles to emphasize how important prayer is in establishing the pattern of Christian life and thought. You will not succeed in your thought life and in your joy if you do not pray. And then he follows it with a promise. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, if you want to have a heart and a mind that follow the pattern of rejoicing and gentleness and contentment and freedom from anxiety, then pray. Pray to have your heart and your mind guarded by the God of peace. Let the God of peace, let his peace stand guard over your mind as you keep your heart and mind in Jesus. This is the Christian way. 
of having a profitable and flourishing thought life. Paul's solution to worry and disunity is clear. Let joy take the place of your anxiety. Look away from yourselves to forbear with the needs of others. Be willing to yield for their sake. And as far as your own needs and your own concerns are are, you're concerned about, let them rest in God. Take your anxiety and your needs to God in prayer. Don't look to others or don't look to yourself to meet your needs. Look to God. And if you do this, Your hearts and your minds will be patterned after Christ, and you and your church will be strong and flourishing. This is what people in the book of life do. People who are Christians, people who are disciples, they do all these things that Paul is describing here, and he's encouraging these Philippians to do. And then Paul continues with another pattern. He has a pattern and a promise in thinking. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And Paul's rhetorical style here really builds up with the repetition of whatever. In the Greek, it's hosa, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. In this list of things to pattern your thoughts after. And then two phrases, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise. And and that just indicates that no list that Paul makes here could be complete. There's, There's no end of listing the excellence that's available to us in God to think on and to dwell on. And so he says all these things, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. And then he says if there's any excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, all of these things, like all the stuff you can add on to this list then those are the things to think on. And notice he says, think about these things. Some of you may remember the name Bertrand Russell. He's a prominent early 20th century philosopher and logician. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And he, he once famously quoted or said, some people would rather die than think, and many of them do. <laughs> and unfortunately, many Christians would rather do just about anything than think about their faith about God, about anything, really. And they may not die, but they lead far darker lives than they need to. As some Christians actually think that it's unspiritual to think. They just want to feel, they want to react, they want to emote their way through life with the, you know, just the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit or whatever it is that they think that God is just going to carry them by love through, and they would rather just kind of feel their way and emote their way through life rather than do the hard work of contemplation and meditation on the scripture and on the person and doctrine and truth of God. But the scriptures will have none of that kind of Christian life. You'll remember Romans 12, 2, probably one of the most famous verses in this regard, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, that means you actually have to do something, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you remember, as I said at the beginning, Paul is trying to help Christians here fight worldliness and live gospel-shaped lives. And if you are going to fight worldliness and you are going to live a gospel-shaped life, then your mind has to be engaged and transformed in your faith. Almost every aspect of our contemporary world conspires together against deep thinking. 
You know, just keep scrolling, just keep clicking, just keep chuckling, just keep sharing the silly meme, just stay worried, stay anxious, stay stay fearful about what your political enemies are doing, stay preoccupied with the trivial or with the temporary news of the week so that we never get around to meditate on the profound and the permanent. Every device you have, every source of media out there is trying to keep you in the trivial and the anxious. And Paul says, don't think on those things. Don't dwell on those things. Don't meditate on those things. Don't contemplate those things. You want to live the Christian life, you need to have a renewed mind. So Paul calls us to a pattern of Christian meditation. Notice the words, think about these things. Be deliberately locked into a pattern of meditating on and reflecting about and thinking deeply on things that are true and commendable. Paul's meditation is not about emptying the mind. It's about filling the mind up with that which is true. 24-7, your television, your radio, your computer, your phone, everything is bombarding you with the trivial and the crude. And if you do not have a plan in your life to deliberately meditate on things that are true and noble and just, then your thought life will be swamped by the noise of the world. True, commendable, just, honorable thinking is not going to come knocking on your door out there. Everything the opposite of that will come knocking on your door and on the back of your phone screen to get your attention. And then he says, all the things like this that you have learned and received and heard, fourfold, repetition again, you've seen them all in me, practice these things. You've got to practice them. And what's interesting, in, in, in just like two sentences, Paul gives a pattern of Christian discipleship. And the pattern of Christian discipleship looks like this. Meditation, instruction, direction, and application. He says, think on these things. That's meditation. What things do we think on? He gives us instruction. He gives us a list. These honorable, pure, just, lovely things. Those are the things you think on. And then he gives us direction. He says, as you've learned and received and heard and seen in my teaching, as you follow me, do those things. And then in application, he says, now practice it. Keep doing it. Keep rehearsing it. This is a pattern of discipleship. This is a pattern of thinking that leads to a pattern of living and of doing. But... But if this is true of the Christian life, then it stands to reason that the opposite is also true. If we have a wrong pattern of thinking, it will lead to a wrong pattern of living. You remember those enemies of the cross of Christ whose God is their bellies. Paul's trying to give the antidote to that. Rather than following your selfish, consuming appetites and passions, instead get a disciplined thought life that leads to a disciplined Christian life. As we get control over our minds and we change the pattern of our thoughts, we will invariably change the pattern of our lives. And this comes from the example set for us by Paul and those that imitate Paul and not imitating those that are enemies of the cross. And then in conclusion, he's given us a pattern of rejoicing and a promise, and now he gives us a pattern of thinking and a promise. He says, you do this and the God of peace will be with you. And notice that the first time that Paul states the promise, he says, the peace of God will guard you. And now he says, the God of peace will be with you. You can see Paul's saying it just gets better and better. 
In the first hand, God's like, yeah, I'll give you my peace in order to guard your hearts and minds. But, but then Paul goes, not only will God give you his peace, the God of peace himself will come and be with you. You'll have God, not just his peace, you'll have him. And if you needed any more incentive to follow Paul's patterns of thought, I don't know what more incentive you need. God's peace guarding your heart and mind, and then the God of peace himself with you? These are the patterns that Paul gives us in response to the gospel. So do you see the need for it in your own life? I don't know what's preoccupying your thoughts and your minds this morning. I don't know what the normal posture of your heart towards the world and towards your life is. Is it full of anxiety and worry? Do you just have to read the next headline? Do you need to know what Donald Trump is doing next? I don't. I haven't even thought of him until this very moment for the last two and a half years. Right? It doesn't matter what they're doing. You know, you don't have to scroll to the next thing. You don't have to worry about what your friends are doing or not doing, or even worse, what your enemies are doing or not doing. What is the normal posture of your heart? Is it joy or anxiety? What are you spending your time dwelling on? Is it pure and excellent things, or is it corruptible and discouraging and debasing things? and, And you'll kind of get a sense of where you're probably spending your thought life because you'll see it in your life. And so you could ask yourself this more externally. Are you experiencing unity and fellowship with the people around you, or are you experiencing disunity and broken relationships? Because if you're experiencing disunity and broken relationships around you, then probably you can trace that back to the pattern of your thought life. And now what are you going to do to change that pattern? Paul's given it to you. Just go home and reread Philippians 4. He's given you the pattern of rejoicing. He's given you the pattern of thinking. The prayer life and the thought life of a Christian is set in the direction, will set the direction of the rest of your life. That's the instruction for believers here today. If you're a believer, if you've received the Holy Spirit, this is Paul's instruction to his Philippian friends who are believers. But I just want to pause here just very briefly at the end and say that as Paul is giving these instructions, he's not giving us the gospel. The the gospel's two paragraphs earlier in chapter 3. Here he's telling Christians who already have received the gospel how to live the Christian life. But if you are not a Christian today, then these instructions will not result in you becoming a Christian. You don't just think better and pray better and and act better to become a Christian. If you want to actually have the peace of God guard your heart and have the God of peace with you, then you have to go back to the gospel to receive Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit so that you can live this way. Otherwise, you will be disappointed. And I don't want you to leave here disappointed today. I don't want you to leave here and try and follow these in your flesh and say, okay, I'm going to think better and I'm going to pray better and I'm going to be a better person. If you don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ and have received it and have the Holy Spirit, then you won't be able to do this. Paul says this is for Christians to live the Christian life. And you'll be frustrated thinking this Christian life doesn't work. It's because you're not supposed to do it. Christ has done it. And when you receive him, he gives you the power to do this. And then it does work. So just know that difference. This is the pattern that Christians here today can live by if we'll follow it. And it leads to life and flourishing and rejoicing and health. And if you're not a Christian, there's a gospel. There's a good news that Christ has done everything already that you need to do to make yourself right with the God of peace. 
And as you receive that gospel and lay down your life to follow him, his Holy Spirit will come and give you the power to live this way. And you will find it possible. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you now as we, as we come to communion that we get to celebrate this unity. And there may be a Euvodia and a Syntyche here. There may be sisters or brothers who are not completely unified thought and mind with each other. And so I pray with Paul that we would seek that unity. Not that we have to step away from communion, not that we have to somehow deny ourselves some part of your grace before that happens, but simply that your heart is that we would know the joy and the rejoicing of being unified in thought and agreeing in spirit and esteeming others more highly than ourselves. And so as we come to communion as a church, we come together unified in the goodness of the gospel and in the beauty of Jesus Christ and in our love for him and our love for you and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we focus on that. And we just remember that we are of one mind and one body. We're the body of Christ. Father, thank you for that unity. Father, continue to work on our hearts that we would focus on things that are excellent and true and noble. And that means your gospel. That means your word. That means the person of Christ. We know that. Father God, just help us. Thank you. Thank you for for your Holy Spirit that takes us through this. Thank you for your word, for what the Apostle Paul has written that guides us. Father, we we come now in communion really seeking your presence because we're not going to do this by our own power. We We need your peace that surpasses understanding to guard us and to lead us and to care for us. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. To Luke 22, 